Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History, a podcast that takes you through controversial events, ideas, beliefs in the history of the Catholic Church and goes through them. My name is Derek Taylor, the host for this podcast, and this is episode number four of our series on Catholic liberalism, the uh, movement that tried to reconcile uh, uh, the Catholic Church to modern forms of thinking, particularly liberal, political, philosophical thinking in the 19th century. And episode four is titled Varieties of Liberalism, 1815 to 1848. And in this uh, little bit shorter episode, we're just going to talk about um, this time some of the other sources for Catholic liberalism as a specifically religious phenomena uh, outside of France. Last time we focused on its origins, France and Belgium, uh, particularly the Abbe de la Manet, who was so important, but he's not the only person. And this episode, I want to talk about a couple of things. is just how these different movements... Um, how I Catholic, Catholic liberalism emerged in different places, particularly we'll focus on two, the Italian world of Italy and the German-speaking world, which covers several different countries. It's very complicated and different to the extent that the circumstances are different than they were in France in the same time frame. So, um, so yeah, before we get into that, just a reminder, everybody, like and subscribe the podcast on whatever platforms you like. I'm hosted by Anchor, which you can find it pretty much anywhere. Uh, please subscribe to us on YouTube. Go like the video. Go click the little bell so you get to, you know, get notified when I have a new episode up. Uh, you know, like our Facebook page. Um, also find us on the web, uh, churchcontroversies.com. I, I have a blog there. I will link to articles that I sometimes get published in Crisis Magazine and elsewhere. So more content for you up there as well as you can find all the past episodes there as well. So please help spread the word. Um, really appreciate it. Get the podcast more known out there. So we can help spread some knowledge of the faith for people and some understanding of what the church is going through today, but also just its its history to know more about it. Because that's what I want to do here is, is help people learn. So, all right. With all that out of the way, uh, brief briefly want to start talking about just you know, Francophone liberal, Catholic liberalism after Lamanet. Uh, it didn't go, go away. Uh, if you recall last time, uh, Lamanet had a lot of followers <clears throat> in seminaries uh, of his of his philosophy. Uh, his friend Charles uh, Montalembert kept up the campaign for uh, freedom of education in France, but they didn't have it there. So that's one of the reasons why he took that liberal stance of wanting to separate church and state there. Um you also have the increase in, you know, this freedom of education more or less achieved in Belgium by the 1830s. Uh, and the bishops of Belgium begin to turn toward a more liberal line. Uh, fun fact, in the 1830s, the uh, Belgian bishops are the first ones to create, in modern times, a bishops' conference. <clears throat> definitely a liberal thing, I guess. Anyway, but uh, it proceeds apace there. There was definitely a constituency in both of those countries. And I will mention briefly, I'll have... A little bit of time to come back to that is here, but Lamanet's influence was n- not that wide outside of the Francophone world. He had supporters in uh, in Italy, uh, even among some bishops. Even a few members of the Curia were sympathetic. Uh, he also had ties to people, as we'll see in Munich, in the German-speaking world. 
Uh, he also had some influence in Britain. He visited Daniel O'Connell, the Irish politician, who helped uh, helped emancipate Catholics in Ireland. And he is uh, he will also have some influence in English Catholicism, as we'll see. But uh, for the most part, things go in that direction without necessarily developing too differently. Um, but big thing I want to talk about here is two two places. One is Italy. <clears throat> And I'm going to try to do this on the the YouTube version of this, put up a map. It helped to have a map of what Italy looks like um, prior to its unification. It doesn't become one country until 1870. And in the, you know, between the fall of Napoleon and 1848, it's like a series of states, effectively um, <clears throat> a handful of bigger states. It used to be even more... Uh, in the middle, you had the Papal States. In the south, you have uh, the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. Uh, north of that, you have more. There's several different uh, uh, polities. The Grand Duchy of Dutch, Tuscany. Um, um, later on, Modena, Lucca, Parma, some of the other places. The Kingdom of uh, Lombardy, Venezia. Uh, the Kingdom of Sardinia, which later on be named the Kingdom of Piedmont, Sardinia. And the uh, the Pope is the ruler of the Papal States, these states in Italy. And um, <clears throat> the thing is, after Napoleon is defeated, you know his states, the Papal States, have been sort of gobbled up. But after they're restored in the eighteen um, in the uh, um, uh, eighteen fifteen, they basically restore the old Papal government as it had been pre-Napoleon, because Napoleon introduced you know modern changes to law and stuff like that. But uh, the Pope got his way, Gregory the, uh, excuse me, uh, Pius the Seventh, and papal government was stored pretty much as it had been before Napoleon, which means it was inefficient and badly needed reform, both administratively and financially. And in fact, uh, liberal powers like Britain and later on France demanded that he make reforms to government, make it more well liberal, uh, include more people in the government of the papal states. Uh, but not just liberal powers, but also Prince Metternich. If you don't know, um, Metternich is the great uh, <clears throat> Austrian diplomat of the age. He's the guy who runs the Congress of Vienna. He's definitely not a liberal, but he sees the need for reform. But the popes refuse, for the most part. Um, they are pretty stubborn about this. Um, they don't like any interference from uh, other states. In particular, one of the things that sort of goads people in Italy, is that the Pope refuses to allow laymen to share in the governance of the Papal States. Again, this is a time period in which, of course, that's happening for the middle classes. There isn't a really huge middle class in the Papal States. It's mostly a rural state, which has been governed that way for centuries. And so there's this, again, clear opposition to anything modernizing. Uh, Gregory XVI, in particular, uh, the guy who condemned La Manet, is opposed to anything that smacks of progress. Uh, in fact, at one point, he basically refused to have a railroad put into the Papal States. And liberals across, I mean, political liberals across Europe uh, mocked this. He had political reasons for it. There was some politics behind it. But still, it, it, did, it wasn't a good look, obviously. Uh, but more to the point, several million laymen in the Papal States really resented this exclusion from government. And again, the same time, middle classes are gaining this everywhere else in Europe, practically. So a lot of tensions. And these types of tensions, of course, will feed into nationalist movements in Italy. Um, 
in the 1830s begins the so-called Risorgimento, the resurrection or the resurgence of Italy, the idea of uniting all the states into one state of Italy, which nationalism is the going thing in the, in the early part of the, the century. And in fact, liberalism and nationalism are pretty closely linked, actually, uh, in that period. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> on one hand, you had a, a, a nationalist movement that was driven by anti-clerical, non-Catholic elements, whose leaders, more or less, there are other leaders, but Giuseppe Mazzini, a great revolutionary, who founded a uh, secret society called Young Italy in 1831 to forward this project of unifying the peninsula. And other secret societies proliferated. There's, you know, uh, you know violence uh, used here. And in response, the clerical government of the papal, state res papal states resorts to uh, oppression. Uh, using emergency military courts to banish or punish dissidents. So it gets really bad, the tensions by the 1840s, such that one Dutch diplomat could write of the Papal States that, quote, all elements of the population are struggling against the yoke and are eager to throw it off, unquote. When Gregory XVI died in 1846, many people in the Papal States openly rejoiced. Uh, so despised was he by that point. On the other hand, there were some Catholics who wanted to try to baptize this movement for unification. This is where the Catholic liberalism part comes in. Some argued for the unification of Italy under the political leadership of the papacy in various guises. Um, to give you one example, um, one the only name you need to know, really, uh, is Vincenzo Giber Giberti, Gioberti who was a Piedmontese priest and uh, initially had been a follower of Mazzini, but he came to envision Italy as a federation of states with the Pope as president. I uh, wrote a whole book. It was very popular, actually. It had, and this is the thing to keep in mind about this, it actually, um, this sort of, you know, baptizing of, of, the, of the unification movement had... Was, well, first of all, it was not popular with the hierarchy or Rome. It was popular with ordinary Catholics and members of the lower clergy. A lot of priests were behind this. And, um, yeah, popes and the religious orders hated it, um, because it, partly because it called for the creation of liberal political institutions, again, to go along with the pope as a sort of, you know, again, not a, not a monarch, but a president, basically. Uh, and the, just to give you an example of what's going on, again, in Italy, I mentioned romanticism, you know, feeding into a liberalism in, in France. Feeds into it here. Um, the uh, the movement for, you know, a Catholic risorgimento was actually dubbed Neo-Guelphism by its opponents. And Guelphism, you know what that name Guelph means. You have to go back to the Middle Ages. This was the name of a, a group of Italians in the Middle Ages who favored the political leadership of the papacy. And so this is kind of a, a you know, a way of saying these people have a, a idealistic or pie-in-the-sky view of politics. Because this is the great age, by the way, where Italy is rediscovering because of its romantic, you know, romantic literary impulses, Dante and the Middle Ages, as they are elsewhere. So it gets kind of kind of bound up with the same currents to a certain degree. <clears throat> and as I mentioned before, and I'll repeat this: there is not necessarily a connection between. These movements, these Catholic liberal movements for, you know, national unification, drive for creation of liberal political institutions, and the sort of heretical um, set of doctrines we call Catholic liberalism, which is more plainly heretical, 
um, there are connections, and in particular here there is, and a couple. This is maybe a little bit different than France, and we'll see in Germany there's a close connection too. There's a connection between at least a couple of different thinkers, and in terms of uh, you know Catholic liberalism as a religious movement, uh, one Catholic liberal is a guy named uh, Antonio Rosmini, and he's a he's the founder of the Institute of Charity actually in Italy, and uh, he's also a philosopher, uh, someone who has this. Uh, idea that there is, you know, we have a direct intuition about universal being. I won't go into this in too much detail. The point is, he's suspected of being, you know, heretical. His works are sort of examined. Uh, it, 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 they never really were condemned totally um, until well after his uh, after his death. And in fact, in in the two thousand, I think it's two thousand one, the, the Vatican finally ruled that no, his his philosophy was not in fact uh, heretical, or was nothing wrong with it. Um, but it made a distinction between the direct intuition we could have of being as separate from God himself. I mention that because <clears throat> there is uh, another philosophy that is heretical, which is very similar, and um, which was condemned in the 1860s, and was something that actually Vincenzo Gioberti embraced. It's called ontologism. And this is just the idea that in, in distinction from being, which is a little different, uh, ontologism says we have a direct, immediate perception, immediate intuition of God himself. And that moreover, to have any sort of knowledge, the only certain knowledge comes from this direct, immediate intuition of God himself. This goes back to the 17th century. You don't have to worry about all that too much, but uh, he resurrects this for a variety of reasons. And uh, I don't know if there is a necessarily a connection between those two things. Other than that, and this is the other thing I want to mention here, is that a lot of these liberals, again, what they're for changes, and that's why some of this stuff is is kind of into, uh, uh, theologically suspect and some of it not. One of the things they're almost all against is they're all against the, the scholastic theology that's being practiced at the moment. Um, in a lot of these places, in Italy, in uh, we'll get to Germany in a second, and other places there, same problems that you had in France are, are present. You know, poor seminary formation and scholasticism that's kind of, again, it's departed from, you know, its heights among thinkers in the Middle Ages like Thomas Aquinas. So there's definitely an anti-scholastic thing here, but it's not necessary, although there's some of the weird stuff going on in Italy. <clears throat> now, um, that's the sort of source of a, of, a, of a Italian Catholic liberalism later on. The other sources come from the German-speaking world, and again, it helped to have a map to look at because the German-speaking world's bigger, and it encompasses several different political entities. On the one hand, if you go, you take a look at a map. Again, I'll try to show you this on the YouTube version, but uh, the, um, um, the German Confederation, as it's called, is made of about 40 states. This is what's remade of the German states after Napoleon uh, is defeated in 1815. Um, and Catholics are spread about all of these different states. you got Prussia in the north is the biggest Protestant power. There are several other ones in the southwest. Uh, and then in Germany proper, the German Confederation, there is also the Kingdom of Bavaria in the south, Bayern in, um, in German. But, uh, but that's, the, that's, like, that's the only real Catholic kingdom there. And then, of course, there's the Kingdom of Austria to the east. And so you have this situation in which there's a lot of different things going on. Uh, in Austria, for example, to begin there, the Austrian church had been, had been under 
imperial control firmly since the 1770s. This is the doctrine that's sometimes called Josephinism, <clears throat> and it named after Emperor Joseph II, who had been an, an Enlightenment-inspired emperor in the late uh, 18th, uh, 18th century, that had basically put the imposed royal control over the church, dissolved some of the monasteries, re restricted some of its privileges, uh, done those sorts of things. And that would that would remain so up until uh, eighteen thirty or so when it begins to change in Austria, partly because of the influence of some people we'll talk about here, but also because Metternich, uh, the Prince Metternich, after eighteen thirty had those revolutions I talked about last time. You know, he wanted to keep, um, to keep those uh, move nationalist movements in check. So he began, and it's Austrian troops that had put down the rebellions in central Italy in, the, in 1830, 1831. So um, he pursues a more um, conciliatory line to work with the Catholic Church in order to pr put these things down. Uh, whereas in the German Confederation, again, things are, again, it's, it's kind of hard to describe because there's all this stuff going on, but... Take Bavaria first. It's the Catholic one. A new concordat cordat is signed between the papacy and Bavaria. This leaves the church as the de facto state church there, but with increased royal powers. So there's more power over the church there. In Prussia and other Protestant states, there's much, much more control over the church, including its property, limitations on Catholic freedoms, especially limitations on the religious orders, which, again, they're touchy because they see them as sort of shock troops of, of Catholicism. Uh, and in fact, in several of the smaller Protestant states in the Southwest, um, particularly the state of Württemberg, which I'll have a reason to come back to in a moment, um, a national church gains traction uh, in which the government controls most of the, of the Catholic church without uh, Roman input. On the other hand, in the German <coughs> Confederation, there's this shift going on where um, the effect of all this reorganization that happened after 1815 weakens the various German churches and makes them more dependent on Rome and the curious, so it kind of increases its authority over them. Uh, and there were problems in a lot of these states, like Prussia, uh, and the one big problem was mixed marriages, because, of course, these states have been mixed, Protestant and Catholic, since the 16th century. And in places like, places like Prussia, they initially tried to force Catholic priests to, priests to form to perform mixed marriages, again, with the intention of, of, of Protestantizing Catholic areas. Uh, a couple of bishops were actually imprisoned over this issue in Prussia, but in the 1840s, a more Irenic king, Frederick the, William IV of Prussia, uh, came to the throne. He sort of changed the church's fortunes there. Uh, but even in Catholic states, there could be clashes over the issue if the church seemed like it was overreaching, because, again, even in Catholic areas, Again, there's this resentment of clerical control. So even in a place like Bavaria, where Ludwig I, who was the king through most of this period, who had support, as we'll see, supports a Catholic revival of, of Catholicism there, uh, became more willing to impose his his, his own um, interests uh, as his reign progressed, because a lot of these bishops could be, you know, again, sometimes they could be too reactionary and, and sort of uh, cross him, so... But probably the most spectacular instance of liberal ideas taking hold in Catholic circles after 1815 and before 1848 um, was in Switzerland. The, as I mentioned last time, the Revolution of 1830 had left all the cantons of Switzerland with liberal constitutions. 
And in several of these, Catholics wanted to imitate the secular liberals in ecclesiastical terms. A reaction sets into this. In, in 1844, Catholics were, you know, ultras, reactionaries, took, gov uh, took the government in Lucerne. And um, in order to prevent, uh, you know, I guess, I guess to prevent shutting down of monasteries and things like this, they formed an armed militia, and they invited the Jesuits back to, back to Switzerland. Uh, when the Swiss Diet demanded they give it up, give up their armed militia, they refused. And in 1847, a war broke out between Catholics and Protestants, the last religious war in European history. It's called the Short War of 1847, in which Catholics were pretty well defeated. And so a new constitution gets passed, banning the Jesuits from coming into Switzerland. Several cantons are given liberal governments, which promptly start doing things like dissolve monasteries. And Swiss Catholics exist thereafter for a long time in a sort of ghetto, separate from the rest of society. So that is something to keep in mind, by the way. When we say liberalism, maybe you're thinking, okay, why was the papacy so... You know, against liberal, well, you know, liberalism was, you know, a military force in the early 18th century. I mean, I mentioned the uprisings in Italy in 1830. They threatened Rome itself, as you're going to see in 1848, which if you don't know, there are even more revolutions in 1848, will actually drive the Pope out of Rome itself. So this isn't an abstract, you know, discussion of ideas here. They're opposed to it because it's, it's directly aimed at the authority of states that aren't liberal, like the papal states. Now in Germany you have um, you have even more uh, ideas floating around, and again it goes back to this situation in which there are all these mixed populations of Protestants and Catholics. Catholics are under the jurisdiction of Protestant monarchs. Um, in many places in Germany, it just explains why um, you get a sort of different. I'll say different style of liberal theology emerging in Germany. In the German, I say German-speaking lands, because it includes Vienna. We'll get to, there's a, a liberalism that comes in Vienna. And there are basically three centers where liberal theology emerges in, in, uh, in this period in Germany. Uh, one is Bonn, which is in the city, which is in the, the western half of Prussia. Uh, Munich, and, you know, capital in uh, Bavaria. And then Tübingen, and we'll come to Tübingen in a second and spend a lot of time with it, because Tübingen is the most important of these, actually, in the long run. Tübingen's in uh, Württemberg in the southwest. And then finally, there's a, there's a, a circle of people around uh, St. Clement Maria Hofbauer, uh, who's a, a priest, uh, passionist priest, in Vienna in the early part of the 1800s. And in general, there are two competing impulses that dominate liberal theology, Catholic liberal theology in this period. One is a sort of rationalism, uh, and this is fairly prominent in German lands, much more so than in, in, in France. Um, remember, I, I, I emphasize that a lot. There's a current, you know, in, in France, because they're so, because their apologetic needs are directed against a very visceral, anti-clericalism, which is backed up by rationalistic thinking, they tend to go in those directions that I've, I've outlined in the first three episodes, toward fideism, the idea that, you know, reason is too weak to come to true knowledge uh, by itself. You need to have faith. 
or traditionalism, which says that, you know, you need to have an authoritative church uh, hand down tradition because reason can't really, you know, come to real knowledge. Those things are part of that a different set of apologetic needs. In Germany, it's very different. Because of the influence of Immanuel Kant and other Enlightenment thinkers, some thinkers in Germany will try to sort of fight fire with fire and put Catholic theology on a sort of, you know, rationalistic footing in in Kantian or post-Kantian terms. Don't worry about these terms, by Kantian, just in terms of his philosophy. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Not a big deal, but enlightenment rationalism, put it that way. Ra again, rather than scholasticism. Almost always people reject scholasticism. It's one of the main things that holds it together as a, as a coherent, you know, semi-coherent intellectual movement. That's one aspect of it. Then there's a more romantic form of liberal theology. And again, this is more like the French in terms of it, you know, looks toward the past. It's it's very you know emotions and all that stuff, uh, but it's also um, uh, again a form of idealistic philosophy coming out of Germany, which is influenced by uh, by Romanticism, <clears throat> and there are currents of things like Fideism in Germany, but they're not nearly as pronounced there as they are in France. Now, what do we have, you know, in places like uh, Munich? Uh, Munich uh, um, was, again, more on the sort of romantic side of things. Uh, Ludwig I, who was the king of, of Munich, gathered a bunch of intellectuals to the university there, including uh, a famous convert, Friedrich von Schlegel, who was a philosopher who converted to Catholicism in the early part of the early 1800s and then moved there on his advice. And Schlegel was, again, a romantic sort of idealist philosopher. Then there is the historian Ignaz von Dollinger, who we'll have, definitely have uh, reason to mention next time, but he's a Catholic historian in Munich. Um, and then two laymen, uh, Johann uh, Gores and um, I think it's Karl von Bader. I may, I may have that wrong there. Maybe Josef von Bader. I have the name's in front of me. But um, you have uh, laymen who I mentioned that because they're interested in things like medieval mysticism. So again, they're counterposing, you know, medieval uh, ideas, um, Catholic ideas against these modern Protestant ones, which are very powerful in a lot of these countries. Um, Bonn and Tübingen are both Protestant cities in Protestant kingdoms, and as such, they they exist. Catholics do in a very different setting, surrounded uh, by Protestant faculty at secular universities. And they aim much of their output towards controversy with Protestants. They are also much more influenced by them. Now, um, to give you a couple of examples of this, specific examples of these two types, um, there's actually a doctrine that's sometimes referred to as semi-rationalism, which arises in more or less in Germany in this period. And there are two major um, um exponents of these kinds of ideas. One is a, a Viennese philosopher <clears throat> named Anton Gunther, and a priest, who in his youth lost his faith when reading Enlightenment works, which should sound familiar from what happened to Lamanet, but who was restored to it by St. Clem Clement Maria Hofbauer in the Vienna Circle in, uh, in Austria. And under his influence, he became a priest and theologian, and after some training elsewhere, he taught in Vienna for most of his life. And again, Gunther's main idea was he wanted to refute modern forms of rationalist philosophy, including the philosophy of people like George Hegel, a German philosopher, very influential. 
but do it through rationalistic means. Other words, using more or less the same types of arguments. Um, because he, like others, again, rejected scholasticism. And he sought, like Lamanet, a quote-unquote Christian philosophy which would which would replace scholasticism. And this is the place where part where it gets kind of heretical, would prove the truth of Christian Christian revelation by reason alone. And I mean things like the Trinity, <laughs> the incarnation, stuff like that. Stuff that, yeah, you probably, yeah, you, yeah, you really can't, you can't do that. Um, but his work was really influential. Why? Because he had a lot of students. Um, uh, he never taught. He taught in an academy. He never taught at a university. He was offered um, jobs at several German universities, but he was waiting for a call from Vienna. It never came. But uh, he had lots of students who came, did become philosophy professors in German universities. And his ideas will eventually be placed on the index in 1857. He he's born in 1783 and dies in 1863. Uh, and they are officially condemned by the First Vatican Council. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if they're by name or not. But he is mentioned by name. He's dead by then. But these ideas, this semi-rationalism will be condemned. Uh, another example of this, these types of thinkers that emerge, <clears throat> um, a man named George Hermes, which is kind of a great name, Hermes. Uh, 1775, he's born, dies in 1831. He was a professor at Bonn for most of his career, again, in Prussia. And his main pursuit was, again, to reconcile Catholicism with the Enlightenment. Hermes was a Kantian. He followed the, the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, and um, he basically thought revelation could be more or less approved by a priori reasoning, meaning, you know, uh, it's a long story, I don't go into this too much detail, but um, he thought you could do this, you know, without having to resort to appeals to, you know, a revelation or authority, which is weird. Um, and uh, his followers, again, dominated Bonn University for decades after his death because he had so many students there. He was a very popular teacher. Uh, but by 1834, his uh, Gregory XVI had condemned his ideas after his death. Uh, when his followers tried to appeal the verdict, Rome re rejected it, and most of his followers had abandoned his ideas, which were uh, it was more or less the end by the end of the 1830s of any influence, but his ideas were also caught in the same condemnation by the First Vatican Council. So you have a different sort of liberalism emerging here, where, again, the, the goal is still try to reconcile it with modern thinking, but here it's more rationalistic. On the other hand, the, the more romantic view is best represented by the school of Tübingen. And they, these are really important to know, the, the Catholic Tübingen school, because Tübingen is a Protestant university, or was, it was a state university, but it had, a, it had Protestant and Catholic faculty. That was, one of, that was one of the innovations of the German university system in the early, um, not innovations, one of the peculiarities about it. And in fact, the modern university is actually invented by German uh, reformers in Protestant countries in the early 19th century, and Tübingen reflects this. But you have a group of Catholic theologians in the faculty there uh, at this state university. They are deeply involved with apologetics. Again, the Protestant setting dictates that. Um, they're very interesting from their background, almost all, and there's, I'm only going to mention two, but there's, there's, there's probably at least a dozen over the course of the 19th century who are very influential. Most of them come from the rural countryside in Württemberg, in the kingdom in which Tübingen sits. Tübingen sits. 
And in particular, they'll emphasize, well, there's a kind of idealism. They're, they're influenced by, you know, again, Kantian uh, philosophy. But they emphasize history and historical training. And they take lots of, they have different, they're, uh, they have a more fleshed out liberal religious program is my point. Uh, they favor things, for example, like making the liturgy more pastoral, putting it in German. A couple of them do. Uh, one a guy named Hefele, uh, who will eventually be made a bishop, will be one of the bishops who opposes the definition of papal infallibility at Vatican I. So they're a little more farther developed because of uh, really one man, Johann Sebastian Dre. <clears throat> I don't have the dates here for his life, unfortunately. You can go look it up. He uh, begins teaching in 1817 um, at, uh, at, uh, uh, at Tübingen. He's the godfather. He's well-trained in history. He's well-read in contemporary philosophy of his time. He also knows very well the major Protestant theologians of his day, like Friedrich Schleiermacher. He knows Immanuel Kant. And he's sort of, again, he's inspired to want to sort of outdo them. And, and <clears throat> one of the things he does is he puts a lot of emphasis in his, for his students at Tübingen on doing history in a way that was never done and had never been done in seminary training or the training of priests. And the reason why is it goes back to that apologetic need to, to answer Protestant objections to the faith. And, uh, in fact, he did original research in which he discovered, for example, that confession, you know, the way that we do it today, you confess individually to a priest in private, um, this didn't happen in the earliest centuries of church history. Uh, that had developed later out of earlier practices. There used to be practices of, of public confession before a bishop, but it's not until, I think, the like 5th and 6th century that becomes, uh, becomes a, a major uh, practice. And um, he discovered this, and from this and other research, he deduced the idea that doctrines and practices weren't all, like the actual doctrines and practices of the church weren't all present in, uh, from the very beginning, but that they grew over time. Uh, and in fact, he, he more so than some of his disciples went in some kind of hinky ways, closer toward heresy is my point, um, uh, again, he talked about Revelation, and well, I'm getting here is that he, and particularly his pupil, uh, his most famous pupil, Johann Adam Moller, who also started teaching in the 1820s, um, we'll say died in 1835 or 1836, but um, mostly, the last few years he was at Munich, but he was at uh, Tübingen before this. He drew on this idea, and Moller is the first, he's a Jesuit priest, he is the first theologian to articulate a theory of doctrinal development in his book, The Unity of the Church. And, um, yeah, the first of its kind. And so it's, again, in the context of that, you know, con you know apologetic, uh, you know, conflict, especially Moeller. Moeller had a real sharp tongue, didn't suffer fools very well. Uh, both Moeller and Dre didn't think much of their colleagues. Uh, they looked down on, again, more, quote-unquote, conservative um, theologians and teachers. Again, they were steeped in things like um, what a later age will call the higher criticism of the Bible. Again, they, they, they treat the Bible a lot more critically than, say, your standard professors do at the time. Uh, but they think that, oh, that they, they think so little of the education of most seminaries. They, they have a real, they have a snotty attitude, to be honest with you. Um, they both see academic theology as kind of superior to anything that goes on the seminaries. And even, at least I get the vibe from them, they, they kind of see 
academic theology as being almost prior to tradition, like we have to check it against academic theology. They put a lot of emphasis on academic training before he uh, came to uh, to Tübingen to work as a scholar, Adam Johann Adam Moller actually went across Prussia and visited all the great universities there. He visited Friedrich Schleiermacher, again, who was a Protestant, and he came away very impressed, and he wasn't very impressed by Catholic universities, by, by contrast. Uh, and so they both have a, a scorn for received teaching to a certain degree. Um not just the scholasticism that they both disliked, but also the sort of counter-reformation traditions of Bellarmine and others. Especially especially their views of the church were very different. Bellarmine and most post-Tridentine apologists had portrayed the church as a, a juridical body, right? You know, an institution. Both Dre and Moeller saw the church as a being a, a mystical body more than a juridical one. That is to say there was an inward... Uh, mystical life to the church, which was more important than outward statements of faith, creeds, the liturgy, which they kind of devalued in favor of what they call the live of the living Holy Spirit. If that sounds familiar to you, uh, some of the people, some of the theologians who inspired Vatican II, were drawing on people like these, like these Tubingen school people. Who uh, there are some people in the 20th century who saw them as being uh, sources for modernism. I think there may be something to that, to be honest, but. Uh, for the most part, Moeller was not, uh, as far as I'm aware, um, a- openly heretical. They were both disliked by their bishops, by the way. Did not like them at all. Again, they both had big mouths. Uh, they're both sharp-tongued, and they didn't take to authority very well. Um, but, um, and again, in that group, again, there's a little closer connection between favoring church-state separation and things like that and their ideas. They both favored it. Um, in fact, during the conflict over state education in Belgium in the 1820s, which I mentioned last time, where the, the king in the Netherlands was trying to impose secular education on, you know, education of Catholic clergy, uh, Moeller was actually sided with the, the Dutch state. The reason why, he, he thought it was a good thing to have Prussian-style, you know, he admired their state universities and their me- methods of education. He thought modern methods of education were more important than... Uh, I guess ecclesial loyalty is very interesting. And so, in short, in the Tubingen school, you see a real direct connection between a political movement and the theological liberalism that was in France. And in fact, by the way, the University of Tubingen is still in existence today. And I know I began this whole series by emphasizing the difference between, you know, modern progressive Catholicism and Catholic liberalism in the 19th century. This is one of the places where there's a direct connection because there is still a Catholic faculty there, and they are, yes, wild-eyed progressives, <laughs> to say the least, at Tübingen. This is where Hans Kuhn got his start in the 1960s, so uh, if you know who that name is. So this is a direct link, and we'll get to this in further episodes, the link uh, um, between you know Catholic liberalism in the 19th century and, say, modernism and, and modern forms of this stuff. Um, but I think the Tubingen, Tubingen school of the early 19th century deserves more, more um, a serious look at in those terms. Then finally, one last coda to all this, and we're almost done here for this episode. And that is uh, the connection between Catholic liberalism and British Catholicism. Now, I mentioned before you know, Lamanet went to Ireland, um, so there's a political movement of liberalism, at least that you know, f- you know, liberates Catholics to it from 
from legal um, um, legal insta- uh, um, legal disabilities in Britain. But there's also some connection between thinkers uh, we already talked about and the English church. Uh, because of one man, Nicholas Wiseman, who was a Spanish-born Irish clergyman and later on cardinal and bishop, who uh, went to the English college in Rome in the early 1818s, became a scholar there, became an Oriental scholar. He was a Syri- scholar of Syriac and meant his life to be spent doing scholarship in Rome. But he was made the rector of that college in 1828, um, and he began to go away from scholarship to deal with all the things he had to deal with. But he also met most of the Catholic liberal, you know, stars of the age. La Manet, La Cordere, Montalembert, they all came to Rome, uh, as well as members of the the Munich circle of Catholic thinkers. He also knew them as well. (laughs) In fact, while he was there in the 1830s, before he converts to Catholicism, he meets John Henry Newman. And in fact, eventually he's going to be made a bishop and sent back to England, partly to prepare the English church to um, for the re-erection of the hierarchy there. Again, after the Reformation, there was no there was no hierarchy in England. They just had apostolic like vicars or something like this. Uh, in the 1850s, which we'll get to next time, the the uh, Rome actually imposes a series of bishops on on the English church. Uh, I mentioned he had met John Henry Newman in the 1830s, and when he moves back to England, uh, Nicholas Wiseman, in 1840, he goes there as a bishop and the president of Oscott College, which is in central England, uh, not too far from Oxford, where if you don't know, at this point in the 1820s, there had started a movement within within the official established Protestant Church of England um, amongst a, a series of clergy and scholars at the University of Oxford to if you like, go back to the sources, uh, to go back to early church fathers, and who were basically trying to get behind the Protestant Reformation. They kind of rejected, a lot of them did, a lot of the excesses, or sometimes outright, uh, the, some of the teachings of the Reformation. And this led these thinkers, among whom was John Henry Newman, to engage more deeply with the early church fathers, and with Cardinal Wiseman. Cardinal Wiseman actually wrote an article on the... Um, on the Donatist controversy in late antiquity, which had a big influence on John Henry Newman, who, of course, eventually, um, and you know what happened, he becomes, uh, he does become Catholic. Uh, And in fact, um, Wiseman saw the Oxford movement as a possible path of reconciliation between Anglicans and uh, Rome, which never panned out, but still. Uh, Why do I mention all this? I mention all this because not only do you have Nicholas Wiseman has some connection to the Catholic liberal world, so does John Henry Newman. Uh, he has certainly read some of Lamennais' thinking. He doesn't. He he says at one point that he's too political for him. But um, you know, I mentioned why am I mentioning Newman as a, a liberal? This is like a touchy subject because he's a he's a subject of debate. People in the I'm going to insist on using the word progressive Catholic camp these days want to claim him. He's no progressive in that sense. Not at all. <laughs> no, not even close. However, at the time, he shared a lot of the, some of the um, characteristics of liberal political. I know this sounds crazy because he talks about being, an, he is an anti-liberal in the context of the Church of England. That's the thing. That's the key. Remember one of the things I said about liberalism? It's not, it's a word that changes meanings from place to place and time to time. 
um, to people back in, you know, England. He's this total retrograde, you know, reactionary. But he also, you know, he's a he's an Englishman. So the philosophical background for his writing, for his apologetic writing, is empiricism, which is, you know, you base knowledge on your experience. Which, again, if you remember, empiricism is one of the targets of people like Joseph de Mestre, counter-enlightenment thinker, thinks it's one of the things that caused, caused the French Revolution. He's also, and again, this is different here, Newman's not anti-scholastic. He goes to Rome, he does some study of Thomas while he's there. Um, he's not against scholasticism, but he doesn't—he doesn't really like it very much. Um, he prefers going back to the early church father. He's into what's called positive theology, historical theology, and all this, plus the fact that he's a convert from Protestantism, made many in Rome kind of suspicious of him. And by the way, I should say, people in England, older Catholics, kind of suspected the Oxford movement. People who came over, they suspected the sincerity of their conversions. Um, and so to a certain way of thinking, he was a liberal to some people. And again, the fact that he emphasizes doctrinal development again, uh, he, by the way, did, he was aware of Moeller's, Moeller's work. I don't know. I don't know if he actually read it. He was aware of it. He was also aware, by the way, he mentions two thinkers in his work, um, essay on the development of Christian doctrine. Uh, one of them is Moeller. The other one's Joseph de Mestre, um, as being influenced. Very interesting. Um, and also he, he's friends with, with many Catholic liberals, one of whom's very, would be the major, major figure in the next, or one of them in the next episode, uh, Ignaz von Dollinger, who's a Catholic historian in Munich. So, uh, again, again, this is, goes back here is there's, there's some ambiguity about this liberalism. There are parts of it are clearly in the 19th century, doing things that are probably, yeah, they stray from orthodoxy. Others are just wanting to adapt as best they can to all these changes they can't really do anything about. Uh, and Newman's kind of in the middle of all that. That's why I mentioned that. Um, but those Italian, but especially German influences, will feed into uh, Catholic liberalism, which we'll talk about next time as it goes into the great period of conflict. Uh, next time we're going to talk about the... Um, Great revolutions of 1848, how they really turn Pius IX into a real reactionary, and um, how you know the fall of the Papal States coincides with the First Vatican Council, which is in some ways a response to all the changes that have been happened uh, politically in Europe up until that point, and condemns a lot of the thinking we've been talking about here as well as defining papal infallibility and leading to the tragic excommunication of uh, a leading Catholic liberal, Ignaz von Dollinger. So that's what, we, that's what we'll be doing next time. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Please uh, really appreciate it. It's great. Please uh, let all your friends know who are interested in Catholic history. Uh, they can listen to my podcast, get a little background. So thank you guys. Uh, we'll see you next time. God bless you all.